Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So the horror that I know is bad that you see all over YouTube and Facebook and everything else are people going out into the forest with pitchforks, shovels, spades, and wheelbarrows, right? There's no question that they are destroying the resource if that's the approach, right? Now, is there a sustainable way of doing this? Hi, I'm Megan Gilger, and welcome to the Fresh Exchange Podcast. Happy Wednesday, my friends. I hope that you all are well. I realize that you may not be listening to this when it's Wednesday, but I hope you're having a good day. Nonetheless, whatever day this finds you at. But I wanted to bring up a conversation which every single year feels as if it is quite contentious. There's always a lot of conversation around our first real harvest, like unique harvest, I guess, you know, of the spring. And that is the wild leek or ramp is another word. So we're going to use both those words today, just so you know. If you are unaware of what these plants even are, they are located in a lot of northern wooded deciduous tree regions, particularly of the Northeast, the Northern Midwest, and even parts of the uh, Pacific Northwest, parts of Canada, they are a wild food, very much wild. These are not easily cultivated into gardens, even yards. They need very particular ecosystems in order to exist. They are a native plant that do not spread quickly. They, There's a lot of interesting things about the ramp. It is a very historical plant. It is a very prized plant by the Native American communities. But it has also become this plant that has become a showpiece. And the more it's used and the more we see it in farm markets, and it, don't get me wrong, this plant is beautiful. And it, it to me, along with morels, just like exemplifies spring. 
to me, especially because I grew up harvesting leeks and harvesting morels as a child in Northern Michigan. And then we go home and we cook them and eat them. And it was a celebration, you know, and I, I didn't though realize like the importance of these plants until I became older. Now that we live on our land here, we have some patches and they're quite prolific here because the land in which they're on has never been disturbed because these plants do not survive in areas that are continually disturbed. And once they're gone, they're kind of gone in that area is what they're finding. So these plants though are going and being placed all over. We're seeing them everywhere. They're so wonderful. They taste like somewhere between a garlic and an onion. They're part of the garlic family. They're very amazing plants to say the least. But the more we see them, the more popular they become. And every single year, it feels like there's more and more of them. And then the conversation becomes more and more contentious because what is sustainability with these? And when popularity goes up, demand goes up, and then the question now becomes, can this wild food remain sustainable to the demand? So, and that question is a big one, particularly, there's some plants where that's not a big question. It's kind of like, well, you know, plants, these plants like this, we understand the nature of them really well. And we're able to say, okay, sustainability with foraging of that is like this. Well, the research on ramps or wild leeks is not there in compared to a lot of other wild foods. And in fact, the research we're getting doesn't conclude what we may think. So, or what we may want to hear as Timothy, who I brought on today, is going to tell us. So because this conversation is so contentious and I always feel like, you know, I have my understanding of what I've been told is the right way to go about this. And just to like put this at where I'm starting in this conversation. So years ago, I would occasionally harvest a bulb here and there, harvest some leaves, and we go out and do it two times in the season. I didn't know much more than what I knew growing up, right? And I'm doing it in woods that no one else harvests in. It's just me and our family. So I just didn't think too far about it. I would post about them. I would share about them. And because they're beautiful, I mean, why not? And I saw other people doing it. So I didn't think it was like anything that big. I'm being perfectly honest with you guys. And and with anything in life, I am always open to learning, to adaptation, to growth, to being curious, to being wrong. I believe like that is the place where I learn the best is when I am wrong, because not only does it build humility in me, but it also is an opportunity. So when I started seeing a lot of people question this, I started realizing I, I need to research this more. I need to get curious. And so I always want to do that. And I want to bring you guys along for that ride. And so what I learned initially and what I've talked about recently is that we should be, if we're harvesting, that we harvest one leaf from one plant. So, because most ramp plants have three leaves, you take one from a very strong looking plant, nice, broad, thick leaf, then that plant still has two other wonderful leaves to perform photosynthesis and feed itself down to the root system, right? Which is the ultimate part that drives the growth of that plant. So, 
as long as we're not removing the leaves, we don't remove the bulbs that make up most of that plant. That seems sustainable from what I was reading. And, you know, so, but what about all the times that I see the whole plant at the farmer's market and I start and I see other people buying those or other people sharing about them or making menus off them? What am I supposed to think? Like, what is sustainable? How do I define sustainable? in this level, you know, that was my question. And there was a, there's like, seriously in our town, there may be, there, there are very few, there are a lot of normal town discussions. Don't get me wrong. But if there is one thing that I could say that our town gets very, very up in arms about, it is about ramps <laughs> and it is a very hot topic. And I realize that, that is, we are not unique in that. That is a hot topic in a lot of towns like ours. So I wanted to bring on somebody who I deeply respect in terms of sustainability, in terms of experience with wild foods, in terms in our community respects. And I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to work alongside Timothy Young. And he is the newly retired but founder of Food for Thought, Inc., which is located here, originally located in Leelanau County, and then they moved on over to Traverse City. But he established it in 1995 after working for quite a long time all over the world in fair trade and sustainability in countries like, like Palestine and the Congo and Ethiopia. Timothy's been all over. On top of that, he has his own piece of land just south of Empire, uh, where he has acreage that's in the woods. He built his home sustainably. He knows so much about compost. Like if there is anybody who knows something about sustainability in our community, I feel like Timothy's up there on the list. He has over and over again proven that with his work of growing food for thought where he was focused on organic and wild harvested gourmet specialty foods. And then he adapted it once he started realizing, you know, and questioning what what is sustainability in this. And I think that's what I respect about him so much. And I had this opportunity a few years back. We did this dinner at Ash Road Beach for Travers Magazine, and we did the whole meal. It was all locally sourced food on the beach in Northern Michigan. It was beautiful. And we harvested so many of the foods from his garden and his land. And I learned a lot from him in just a few hours. I had the opportunity to be there with him on his land and shoot some photos with him. So I knew right away that he definitely was the right person. And then reading more of his bio, I was like, okay, he really is. Because the last few years, he's been working on humanitarian and activism and a broad range of issues like farmland preservation and He's been the president of the Northern Michigan Environmental Action Council and former vice chair of the Michigan Land Use Institute. The list goes on. Timothy knows the land here. And what I love about him is he's he's always willing to adjust as the research shows. And also he's working from the point of other experiences that he's seen in sustainability over the course of his life and his work in, in all of these areas of, you know, relief work and travel and farm preservations and land protections, he's been able to apply his knowledge to current situations he's also dealing with. And so I feel and respect so much of his perspective on this 
So I felt like he was an awesome person to bring into this conversation and to kind of answer some of these questions for me because I am totally willing to be wrong in this. Like all I want, and I'm sure you want, is to take care of resources we have in the right way. So if it is right to pull a few bulbs because it helps the plant become more prolific or if I harvest two leaves or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. And also give us the ability to know what questions to ask in a kind way, how to challenge our communities, how to, you know, all of that. So I'm just going to dig in with this conversation. I know this is a long intro, but the conversation is really great. Timothy's amazing. We're going to bring Timothy on actually to also talk about a few other topics. So I hope you guys enjoy him. He's such a gift. So let's jump in. Well, let's dive in. Um, first of all, let's just like, what is your experience in foraging here in Northern Michigan and all over the world? Like you have a lot that you have done. You've been doing it for decades. Can I say that? And, you know, give us the background yeah, here. I, but I don't, I do not consider myself a wild food specialist, yeah. right? In that sense. Yeah, I'm mostly just self-taught. And then I did commercialize a component, yeah. of, you know, with the league, we used to make stuff and I'll go into that too. I mean, yeah. Unless we're starting now. We're, yeah. Let's hear it. Let's go for it. Okay. Just, <laughs> so, just jump in. <laughs> I guess, so, so yeah, for me, I mean, I never have touted myself as a wild food specialist. I've been a hobbyist my whole life. So, you know, I do the research, I go out and I hunt and gather stuff. Um, and uh, so really, you know, outside of mushrooms and some wild herbs and other edibles, you know, leeks have been a big focus in my life. And at one point when I started my company, my company was kind of based on the concept of, you know, providing uh, wild crafted foods as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my first jam was a wild blueberry Merlot. And, you know, right in the early stages of my business, I pickled leek bulbs. We did a, a pickled leek bulb. I did a pickled leek relish, mm -hmm. a leek vinegar. We still make a wild leek pasta sauce. Um, and so uh, commercializing it is when I really started to, you know, really focus on, hey, am I doing this right? And uh, and so I learned a lot over the years of, of looking into that and, and doing the research on it and doing different practices in my own forest. And so that's kind of the trajectory of how I got into it. Yeah. And you have been very involved with fair trade sustainability practices. Like you've taught mm -hmm. me a lot, like when we did our dinner and just like seeing your home, your farm, like everything there. And I just, I, I was like, it was kind of one of those first moments where I, I was already kind of in that motion, but you like really mm -hmm. showed me an, another whole level of it. And you're composting, yeah. like you're very much about regenerative ideas and things like that. So kind of explain some of that too. Yeah. So, you know, in my trajectory and that too, you know, long before I started my company, I did a lot of human relief work in the developing world and mm -hmm. a lot of it in, in conflict zones. And so I had this early in life exposure to the exploitation of both land and people, mm -hmm. right? You know, I learned firsthand, you know, working in these communities, the true cost of what it takes for us to have pea pods in our salad in March, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so that kind of precipitated my starting my business and everything as well, too. So by the time I did that, you know, I, I came back from all those experiences and I really was pretty committed to how can I do it differently? Mm -hmm. You know, how can I not leave a trail of garbage and, you know, carbon and all these, you know, things behind me? Um, and so that's just, and it hasn't been 
drudgery. It's just been my channel. It's like I'm when I want to read a book or learn something, that's generally where I tend to go is try to learn to think more deeply about how I impact the planet. So that just all folded into my company as I started that. And, yeah. Well, uh, that's amazing. And why we're talking and, about leads. What? <laughs> and why we're talking about leads. Exactly. Right? So you have, I mean, you you have your own patch that is on your property, correct? I do. Okay. And where, like, how, how many years have you been experiencing that particular patch? I guess like. So, yeah, I, I've lived on that property for, you know, 25, 27 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it started for me with just personal harvesting and I'd pickle a few and dice them up and saute them and freeze them or make pesto out of the leaves or mm -hmm. something, you know, and it's just kind of me nibbling at it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I started my company, that's when we started to, um, you know, take them out in, in greater volumes. Um, I did initially hire people mm -hmm. and uh, I used to, I created at the time and nobody was even talking about sustainable harvesting then, but I just had a hunch, you know, yeah. I kind of developed my own method um, and I sent you a link to a YouTube mm -hmm. video that I posted that kind of describes it, but I sort of developed a harvesting method that, you know, was kind of a lead, no trace. I could go through a leak patch and you wouldn't even know I was there. Right. But I could come out with a bunch of leaks. So I developed that and I created this document with drawings and descriptions on how to do that. And I made everybody who harvested for me sign it. Mm -hmm. And I only did that for a few years because I really didn't feel like I had any control over how these people were doing it. And their incentive was to make money, right? They were yeah. getting paid by the pound. So it just... I just didn't trust that system. I realized that there were probably enough on my farm that we could go there. Plus, we also certified my woodlot organic, and I okay. wanted to get these products to be certified organic. So long story short, yes. Then there was probably about 15 solid years of harvesting on that property. Okay. Um, anywhere from a few hundred pounds to, you know, maybe five, six hundred pounds a year wow. of bulbs and greens. And, and because we're a certified organic, the, the, the ancillary benefit of that is um, you know, it's very regimented, you know, we had to document, you know, what days we harvested, how many pounds we harvested. Mm -hmm. And I even thought to, I pounded steaks in the woods, you know, that were painted red so that we would rotate every year mm. to a new spot. So I was kind of doing my own kind of survey and I'd go look at the place the next spring and go, boy, can I tell we were there? And then, you know, we might not get back to that quadrant for two or three years. Right. So I was trying to sort of be careful there as well. Um, and that got, uh, that hit the radar of, of some entities that are doing some sustainable leak research. And uh, I can go into that in more detail. I think it's important, but, yeah. um, so now my property for the last five or six years has become a study plot. Okay. So I'm no longer kind of being the guy monitoring it. There's actually people there that are coming and doing inventories. And that's a pretty fascinating study too. And way ahead of anybody else. It's, that's amazing. Yeah. So we know a lot more about leaks today through the study. And I was just emailing the the leaders just in the last few days to kind of get the latest data and research and where they're at in the process. So so what do we uh, know about the nature of these plants? Like how they function, what they do? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, they're not a leak. Yeah. <laughs> they're uh, related to the garlic. And, and they grow like the garlic, right? Like if you just look at a dried garlic bulb, there's all those bulbs and they're all attached to a single root mm -hmm. at the bottom, right? Um, and that's basically how the leeks grow, right? So um, they, and they reproduce via both their rhizome, which is the root system mm -hmm. and seeds. Okay. Um, a plant takes from, when a seed germinates, it takes anywhere from 
five to seven years to produce a bulb. Mm -hmm. And then the bulb, only the oldest bulbs shoot up that seed pod, which you can see later in the summer, that flower that comes up. Okay. And then when it all dries and the plant's gone, you see that single stem with all those little black seeds in the top. A lot of people walk through the woods and see those and don't realize they're leaves, but that's the seed pod. So they can drop a seed. Seeds have up to about three years to germinate before they become, you know, no longer viable. Uh Um, Partridge are probably the biggest enemy. Partridge gobble those seeds up, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And conditions aren't always present for seeds to germinate. So I've heard numbers of one out of a million or a hundred thousand seeds germinate, you know, but that's not unlikely in nature. Everything is you know, spread yeah. as many people as they can and hope that a few take, right? Yeah. I don't think there's solid research on that, but there's been some estimations on what the germination rate is. So the, you know, the, the seeds are susceptible to surface, I don't want to say predators, but just the cycle of life, right? Yeah. Birds eat, and I'm sure rodents stash them and mm-hmm. squirrels and everybody else eat the seeds. And then obviously the rhizomes are uh, susceptible to, you know, the earth being disrupted. People yeah. harvesting, for example, mm-hmm. um, construction, all these other kinds of things, or riding an ATV through the forest. You know, these kinds of things all do damage to the rhizome. Yeah. So, yeah, because I, I read something that like the like they need this specific ecosystem even in order to grow it all, and like you won't ever find them on in areas that have been like you know cleared or are driven in. Like they just won't. They they don't like that land at all sure. like they need like untouched like virgin land so to speak right? right and i think you know there's also other factors too that are probably we don't even understand yet right like the soil ph and mineral content mm-hmm. and you know microorganic activity and all the other things that happen in living soils because i have noticed just since i've been plotting and mapping in my forest they don't tend to spread into the areas where they're not mm. now maybe they do but again we already know the life cycle of this plant is pretty yeah. long so maybe they're just doing it at a guy in my lifetime i'm not going to see a big change yeah. you know maybe a hundred years from now they will have moved 20 feet yeah. <laughs> from <where they> are. <laughs> no, i don't know you know what i mean yeah so um so i think there's there's just obviously like anything there's more we don't know than mm-hmm. we do know about that plant and how it survives and its ideal conditions yeah i yeah, because I haven't, I mean, we've only been on our land here for five, this will be our fifth year. And I have, like, I know where they are, but they they haven't moved. Like, I could almost, yeah. like, go straight back and be like, okay, that's where that those ramps are and leaks are. Yeah. Like, that's where they're going to grow. And mm-hmm. sure enough, they'll be right there. Like, I can almost, like, plan it exactly. And <laughs> yeah. it, it's fascinating just watching them. And they're so different than so many of the other plants that function in the woods, I feel like. Yeah. And j- because like morels are such a mystery, like you just never yeah. know, really. I mean, right. and we can all say- And we when have you have a spot with morels too, it, it might produce really well for like five years. Yeah. You go back to that same tree, that same hill, that same whatever. And then some years later, they're just- there's a cycle there too, right? Yeah. That I don't think we understand. No, you know? at all. So. Like I found them in a, like a pine grove one year and then like in a yeah. rocky area the next. Like right. makes right, no right, sense. Right, right. <laughs> or in um, the, the the wood chips at the uh, 
landscaper jumped. Yes. Yacht, right? And all of a sudden, boom, you know, <laughs> yes. And so it's ramps and leaks to me are just so fascinating. And, and there are, I mean, when we're talking about foraging them specifically on an individual level, what do you feel is a safe way? Like when I talk about this, I kind of think about it like, like my friend equivalented it to me, like you kind of have to think about it, like how doctors talk about alcohol with pregnant women. Like they're not going to just right. tell people like, go ahead and have like a small amount, you know, after yep. your second trimester or something like you have to generalize it and make it where you consider the people will take whatever you say and go like five steps beyond. So yeah. we can take that approach to it or however you feel. Yeah. So, you know, there's, um, like, you know, health advice isn't the same for everyone. Yeah. Same is true of leaks, what's sustainable and what you can, can and can't do based on the knowledge we know. It's fraught with um, privilege, politics, and resistance to knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. the more we learn about the leak, unfortunately, the more we learn that they really probably can't be harvested very sustainably. Mm. So what we do know um, is... Uh, from the research, let me give you a little bit of background. So yeah. as I told you that my forest, you know, we were harvesting commercially for a while and tracking it, you know, everything from dates, amounts and all of that and, and locations and everything. So there's a study that was actually started by the uh, Institute for Sustainable Foraging, which Tamarack Holdings in Traverse City launched many years ago. Chip Hoagland was behind it. Um, and they sought to ask this question. So they kind of looked around and found, you know, some groups that had been doing some research in leaks and they got involved too and inspired them to, to take this a little bit deeper. Now it's blossomed into this huge um, research project that involves uh, the FDA, uh, Forestry Department, mm. University of West Virginia is kind of the lead on it, as well as about four or five uh, uh, native nations from oh, awesome. the peninsula of Michigan to uh, Montana and North Carolina all the places, you know, where these leaks grow. And there are quite a few uh, native tribes that have been harvesting for, you know, these yeah. obviously for forever. And they wanted to assure that their methodologies were sustainable. Amazing. Too. So, so what's been happening is my plot and they have plots all over the country. Um, they've now been monitoring. They, they came the first time and they, they surveyed the land they put stakes in the ground and measured and did all this stuff. And they do a leak inventory and mm. then we would harvest and give them the data and then they'd come back the next spring do an inventory we would harvest the next you know this okay. so this has been going on for five or seven years now okay um now my company i we moved it mm -hmm. uh off-site and we ceased hiring and ceased making those products because for a lot of reasons but part of it is we just really want to know are we doing this yeah. properly um and uh so now my force is kind of in like this recovery mode okay so me personally if i go out and grab a few leaks i go to the non-study area of my forest and grab a few right so we're just that's just sitting there and they're going to track recovery on that one for a while okay so um uh, the unfortunate piece of this is and that's why i say there's politics there's privilege there's everything else right for me it really depends on is it private land that someone has control and is taken care of versus public land where just anybody can go and do whatever they want mm -hmm. right so the horror that I know is bad that you see all over YouTube and Facebook and everything else are people going out into the forest with pitchforks, shovels, spades, and wheelbarrows, right? Yeah. There's no question that they are destroying the resource if that's the approach, yeah. right? 
Now, is there a sustainable way of doing this? Um, the research is definitely not conclusive yet, but they are leaning towards there probably isn't a sustainable way to mm. harvest the bulbs. Mm. Now, that's where sort of the privilege comes in. You know, yeah. if you happen to be a person like you or I, and we have a little plot of land and, you know, with some trees and some leaves growing in it as a single family going out there and harvesting a few pounds a year on an acre that might have a thousand pounds of leaf bulbs under the earth. Yeah. We're probably harvesting below its recovery rate. Okay. But even that recovery rate's not even certain yet. Every time they think they're getting to that data, it looks like it's longer and harder than they think, right? Mm. So recovery slow and damage is done, even with, you know, picking a little bit. And so the to say it's sustainable, you know, on public land, it'll probably never be sustainable yeah. because you have no way of controlling how many people go in there. My method that I developed over the years is kind of like a leave no trace harvesting yeah. where you can like stick a finger down underneath a bulb and you can pop it off the rhizome without breaking the rhizome or damaging any of the bulbs in the, in, in the cluster. Yep. So yeah, I think that's probably the most sustainable way to do it if you're going to take bulbs. Yeah. Um, but again, I can't guarantee that that's sustainable. Yeah. So even if that's happening, say in a in public land, you have no idea how many people are out there doing yeah. it. So you can come in behind me and you won't know I was there, but then somebody else could be harvesting from those same clusters that I did three days ago and taking more. And then another person comes and take more. So in an environment where you have no care and control over the resource, it's probably never going to be sustainable or wise. Yeah. Right. Um, if you have a relationship with a landowner and they let you, you know, or maybe you and only a couple couple other people go and say, hey, don't take more than five pounds or yeah. clusters. I think there's still a way to have leaks in our culinary culture and heritage here where we use them in that way. But it's it's going to be like caviar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's going to be highly prized. And it's not the thing we can go out in the woods with shovels and just dig up, right? Yeah. Um, or, you know, if there's a woodlot that's going to be bulldozed to build a house. Yeah, let's go in there and dig those puppies up and transplant some maybe or, you know, harvest them and eat them and, and have a celebration of this plant. But I think we have to begin as people who are in the food industry and who are trying to nurture and take care of our resource, I think we have to shift our thinking about this plant, unfortunately, because that's where the data I think is leading us. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, kind of what I've been seeing. Yeah. And that's the bulb. Yeah. Now the green, of course, which um, is also a beautifully lovely thing yeah. to you. Um, and maybe even the better part of the plant, the more <laughs> I start to use it with things, you know, can, can be harvested, right? And again, that's going to depend on when you do it, how much you do. You know, you're not going to want to just grab a cluster and whack it off with a machete yeah. and, and leave a whole cluster, you know, with no ability to engage in photosynthesis. What I like to do is um, I let my leaves and my forest come up until they're fully up and, you know, they're doing their job. They're feeding the bulbs and the rhizomes and doing the photosynthesis thing. And then there's this point every year where the very tip of the leaf there's this like sharp point mm -hmm. browns and curls you know right then three or four days later that leaf's going to start to yellow yeah and drop yeah. right at that point they're probably pretty much done they've got most of okay. they've done most of their work but i don't wait till the leaves are yellow they're still good green and yummy and that's usually when i go out and start grabbing leaves that's perfect if i take them before that like now for example just for my salad or to make some yeah. pesto then i'm just really careful and i only take like one leaf off of a cluster and kind of walk through the forest and it's not hard to get a pretty good load of leaves without really getting more than one leaf per cluster so again i'm not preaching that that's the way or the only way or the way 
or even a sustainable way, but based on the knowledge and the research we know so far, I feel kind of okay about that. Yeah. Whether we can really commercially harvest and sell these things, the, the book is still out there for sure. Yeah. And like, I guess that's kind of, it was kind of raised and why I reached out to you was because I, I just kind of talked about, cause every year I just make one batch of pe like ramp pesto and I mix in some spinach or whatever from a local farm and, you know, use over, use up some leftover things from the fridge to make it and we freeze it. And it's a very special thing. It's a very special yeah. moment. It's a, it's like that first harvest of the year. It's this beautiful thing. And, but I, you know, all over, like all over Instagram, all over you know, magazines and everything when we talk about the food industry, or even if we walk into the farm market, you know, they're there with bulb attached yep. and they're not really at that point where they like you showing like the yellowing leaves and you're really just getting the bulb, you know, they're with the whole plant basically. Yeah. And people started asking me like, how do we know sustainability in that setting like how what is it like if we ask at the farmer or you know the store like where did or the restaurant or chef or whatever where did you get these how did you harvest them sustainably how do we know what would be in a sustainable answer and that's kind of how we got to this conversation or yeah. you and i because i was like i know sure. who's perfect for this <laughs> so i guess like is there a way to you know, how should we be responding, I guess, to when we see these yeah. things going on? Should we be questioning? How do we kindly question? How do we still support farmers that are, you know, they're trying to make a living, you know, we, know. we know how hard that is. And so it's just, how do we do this communally in a way that's supportive? It's tough. And it is because it's, it's an emotional thing for people, you know, it's yeah. food, it's a living for folks. And some people, you know, when they've been doing something their whole lives, boy, it's baked in. Mm -hmm. and, and even knowledge won't change their habits. Yeah. You know, it's, it's tough for folks, right? So, um, but I think you have no choice. I mean, I've, I've gone on to posts where people have posted, you know, these proud pictures of wheelbarrows full of stuff and a dirty shovel. And, yeah. you know, and I, and I try to be gentle. I'm, I'm not always as gentle as I could be, right? We could always be more gentle and I try. You know, and I've been, you know, roundly attacked, you know, and insulted and threatened. And but this is what we love about you, Timothy. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you're an important part in this community. <laughs> yeah, I will wait in. I, I don't have reservations about waiting in. I, I like that though about work you. On my approach sometimes. But, um, but seriously, it's a conversation we have to have, right? Yeah. I mean, you can't always... <sighs> I mean, you can always be nice, but you gotta be truthful. Yeah. You know, and you just gotta just share and say, you know, and also relate. I mean, I will tell people 20, 30 years ago, I went into the woods with a shovel too. Yeah. Right. It's like, this is not a sin. Yeah. It, it's just, but I've since then been through this process and now I understand this. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned about this as opposed to saying you shouldn't do that. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean? That's yeah. never going to be. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's important. What you're doing right now is really important. Just let's talk about it. Let's yeah. get it out there. It, information and non-confrontational and non-insulting way is obviously digests better than any other. And so um, I think we can, we can change the culture. And how cool would it be, though, that just elite becomes this really precious thing instead yeah. of something you can just go 
fill wheelbarrows full of and sell at the farmer's market. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, you know, caviar comes from an endangered fish, right? Yeah. So we have to treat it carefully. It's a resource now that is very well managed in all the yeah. places that it comes from. And so it's, it's a, it's a luxury item. Yeah. Right? And so, I think that that's kind of the beauty of, of some of these things, you know, is that we can learn, we can, we can learn sustainability and what that looks like and that it is different for all sorts of different things. And it allows us to see things in a broader way, a bigger way, you know, and it gives more life to things, which is always beautiful, you know? So I, I, I've been so enlightened by the conversation around this and just because it, I, I always love finding appreciation for things that felt so normal, like a part of life. And then I learn like, whoa, this is so much more special and unique than I even realized. And like I said, like I grew up doing this and thinking that was normal, you know, like everybody yeah. does this. And now yeah. it's this thing where my son is so like, he treads so lightly through the woods where it's like, yeah. I don't want to hurt these things because we, you know, we've learned like these things are so special. The ground that we walk on is so special, you know, but I, I know that there's also options outside of wild leeks. Like we also have the our garlic. What is it called? I'm forgetting the name of it. The wild garlic that's invasive. Oh, the garlic mustard. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's like massively invasive, particularly in Northern Michigan and it doesn't yeah. contribute much to the ecosystem, you know, whereas like a wild league, it, it contributes quite a bit. It has its yeah. own system that it plays a part in. And yeah. how, like, what is it that when I like, do you feel like that's a good alternative to this conversation? Like if we're talking about flavor profile, well, things like that. Invasives. What? <laughs> I'm all for eating invasives. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I made the uh, the autumn olive, right? Yeah. I used to, I made, or we made an autumn olive preserve, yeah. right? Talk about controversy, right? Yeah. So I figured that's a way of extracting the seeds and, you know, and getting the fruit and utilizing it for something. But, you know, there were people in the invasives industry who thought it was great and other people who thought it was evil because we were going to make this invasive popular and people might mm. plant it. It's like, Interesting. Boy, do anything about olive olives, nobody's going to plant it because that thing just... Yeah, proliferate crazy. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I mean, eating the garlic mustard is great. I pull up a couple of garbage bags full of it every year on my farm. You know, it's just one of those things that we've we've got to figure out something to do with it. Yeah. What I don't want to see us come to though is what they've had to do in lots of places in Canada and out east where the population densities are greater. Yeah. They've had to just completely make it illegal to harvest leaves, right? In mm. many parts of the country, because so many people are going into the woods and just digging them up selling them at markets or yeah. chefs or you know, doing dishes in the restaurants. And it just, they were really damaging the resource. And I, and I don't want to get to that point where we have to say, nobody can harvest leaks, right? We want to try yeah. to, and that's why the conversation is important. Yeah, right? absolutely. We, you know, we don't want to, like I saw somebody talking, uh, comparing it a little bit to like carrier pigeons, you know, we used to see yeah. skies full of them and we don't see them anymore and things that don't, easily reproduce or, you know, if we don't understand how to be sustainable with them, then they can disappear altogether. And, and that would be a shame because it's so important to just have these conversations and just to like put them in front of us and be willing to learn and willing to adapt and willing to change and willing to ask questions about it. So I yeah. guess like 
Is there anything else that you feel like would be really like important in this conversation for understanding or how people can like follow along with projects like the research that you're talking about that's going on in your woods, things like that? Yeah, you know, because this is a, you know, an academic endeavor and um, I'm, they're not really going to probably publish anything until they feel that they have some conclusive things to add. So what I'm sharing are what the researchers have shared with me personally. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to put their names to it or anything yeah. at this point, but I will inquire with them because they may have done some publishing. And also one of the lead researchers actually said that, and maybe, you know, you could interview him too. Yeah. Uh, he actually said he wants to write an article just for general publication, not for academic journals that just kind of talks a little bit about what we know now and, and some of the things that we know are damaging versus what may be possible um, and he's kind of looking for a publication that may do that. So that's awesome. Uh, I think it, so. I'll, I'll stay in touch with you on that too, if you want to share that. With yeah, me. absolutely. I think comes up in that realm, yeah. and I'll be spreading it on my Facebook page too, because we do need to spread the knowledge about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's hard. Like when I was doing research myself, like there aren't a lot of papers out there about it, and I think mm -hmm. the University of Illinois had one, and. Yeah. And I think for them, it's incredibly important because, you know, you go in Chicago to the farmer's market and you're finding these for like $15 a pound, like a bunch or a bunch of them for $15. I, I think it's really important that they are studying it in areas like that, particularly because of population density and things like that. So, yeah, but yeah, yeah. well, we this is have, super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. We probably have relatively limited impact here just because of our density, right? In yeah. 70,000 acre national parks, even though it is, it is illegal to harvest them in the national park. That's important. For people I was going to gonna ask that. <laughs> yeah. If you are in the Zeke Bear Dunes and you get caught pulling leaks, you're going to go home with a ticket. <laughs> that's <laughs> a much. good thing though. Yeah. 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 No, at least, I mean, that's kind of the point too of the national park is they want it to return to its natural state. Yeah. Now you can harvest berries and mushrooms and things that don't replenish the resource, yeah. right? Um, you're just competing with the birds and, you know, so forth at that point. Um, I think you're limited to a five gallon bucket worth of yeah. anything you harvest in, per day yeah. in the national park. So, you know, be that wild apples or whatever you're harvesting. So, yeah. So I think that's part of that question of sustainability too, is like, if you see them at the market or on a plate or, you know, asking yeah. what, like, not because you want to take their location, but wanting to understand, are they doing it on public land? What is the public land? You know, asking those questions, yeah. I think are really important, obviously, from what you're saying, because obviously on private land, like ours, you know, it's not a big thing because I'm the only person doing it. And maybe somebody is a farmer and they have, you know, a hundred acres and they have some woods that they're just harvesting a small batch out of every year. And then that to me may be okay if they're the only people doing it and they're, mm -hmm. this is their one precious moment of harvesting them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's ideally where we go, <laughs> right? Where everybody can have access to this and have, you know, a meal or two every spring that includes leaks. And it's just yeah, it's a it's, precious moment. I, I see know? it as like that, that like first harvest, you know, really it's one of our first, I mean, there's obviously like overwintered vegetables in the garden, but you know, yeah. <laughs> like our first thing that isn't kale or, you know, yeah. a cabbage. Right. So right. No, we're really tired of cabbages. Yeah. I'm so glad kale doesn't come up in the spring. Yes. And the, I just noticed my spinach was like completely revived from fall. And I was like, what? Like, I yeah. don't get me wrong. I love spinach, but I, 
it's always exciting to harvest something new, I guess. And so, yes. Yeah, we've all been to various places on the planet, but I love four seasons. I do too. Yes. Right? Just because my diet changes seasonally, everything changes. It's just like, I love it. It's awesome. So, well, yeah. Thank you so much, Timothy. I did not want to take too much of your time today, but I so appreciate you just jumping on and doing this with me because I, I feel like it's just so important that we just get curious about it more than anything. Well, me too. And and I'm honored obviously to that you thought of me and thank you because I I'm passionate about this stuff too. It's important information to get out there and share. So, uh, thanks. Thanks so much, Timothy. Such a wonderful chance to sit and talk together. And I hope you guys just really had a chance to learn a lot. I learned a lot. I'm really excited to hear more about this research. And I'm going to link to some different things in the show notes for you if you want some more reading. And also ways to keep up with Timothy. So uh, I really hope that you enjoyed this today. Next week, I brought in my text chain that I'm on for my chicken friends. (laughs) So I have two other friends and we're going to chat and answer your questions about chickens, everything. And I promise you, this is going to be a longer episode, but I hope you feel like you're hanging out with your girlfriends and having a glass of wine because it is hilarious. We had such a good laugh. There's so many good stories. I know you guys are going to love this. If you are thinking about getting chickens, jump in on this conversation and give it a listen next week. I, cause you're going to love it. I promise. So my friends, Corinne and Adrian are really wonderful. So until then I will see you out there friends. Hi, I'm Daniel founder of pretty litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 